Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week on the show, I sat down with Jason Quaid, the founder of Abbey Bike Tools, who have been making a whole bunch of the nicest bike repair tools out there for bit over a decade now and doing the overwhelming majority of the manufacturing right in Bend, Oregon. And I wanted to talk to Jason because not only does Abby make super nice stuff that I have been consistently impressed with out of the assortment of the tools that I've tried thus far, but also he's got a very unique perspective and position to look at the bike industry more holistically and think about how the ever-changing standards and mounting systems and all the rest are kind of fitting into the whole world of bike stuff and what it's like to try to keep up with making a assortment of tools to service all of the different bits that are going on with bikes and so it's a very cool conversation jason's got a lot of great stuff to say starting just from a very entertaining story on the founding of abby to some good thoughts on the state of the bike industry more generally and I think you're going to enjoy it. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, I do want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus Spot membership and insurance, which gets you $25,000 of per accident, $0 deductible injury insurance anywhere in the world if you're doing any number of outdoor activities, including biking, skiing, and a whole lot more. So we think this is a really important thing because... Not only does it have the potential to save you a lot of money if you get hurt, but it also just means that you don't have to do a frustrating cost-benefit analysis to decide whether it's worth going to the doctor if you have a minor injury and just want to get something looked at. It'll be covered. It's not that expensive to get the coverage. And not only can it save you a lot of money, it can also just help keep you healthy and out doing what you love in the outdoors. So... Check out the link in the show notes, get yourself signed up, and get yourself covered so that you don't get wrecked twice if you do wreck the first time. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Abby Tools founder, Jason Quaid. Well, Jason, great to sit down and chat. How are you doing and where are you right now? Uh, doing pretty well. It's it's definitely been a long spring here in, in Central Oregon. Uh season that I often describe as a war between winter and summer. It's not really its own distinct uh, season around here. So uh, yesterday, winter was definitely winning. Uh, I had a few inches of fresh snow and uh, in town, and uh, today's supposed to be a little bright. And yeah, um, just hanging out at the house where it's quiet, uh, doing the interview because our, our production or my office at the production facility is is uh, is kind of noisy uh, for this kind of thing. So yeah. Well, appreciate you finding a quiet spot and yeah i can imagine that a production machine shop is not really the ideal place for audio fidelity so yeah. much appreciated there and so well i guess we'll sort of circle back around to the earlier part of the abby story in a minute here but to start it off i'd just be interested to have you tell us in your own words kind of how you think of the current 2023 state of Abbey and what the company is and what you guys do. Yeah. I mean, we're doing pretty solid at this point, uh, in the year. I mean, 
the bike industry definitely seems to be in a big state of flux um, with a lot of people that hearing rumors of, of some, some of the major players are way overstocked and are seeing, you know, sharp declines. Um, we're definitely not in that boat. Um, we're a little unique in the, in the sense that we build about 85% of our parts in house. Um, all the tools that we built uh, are still hundred percent sourced in um in the state of Oregon, even not even just in the U S but, um, so that's kind of cool. It makes life a lot easier. Uh, definitely made the supply chain stuff for us a lot, uh, easier to tolerate during the the pandemic. Um, and it kind of kept us from being grossly overstocked. Um, nobody downstream from us, uh, wound up doing or having, uh, buying out of panic. Um, and so nobody downstream of us had is like sitting on a mountain of our goods. So, um, yeah, at this point, things are, are good. Um, you know, sales stuff's kind of depending on exactly when you take that snapshot is, um, is on par with last year. So, um, which I think there's probably not too many people that could make that claim at this point, but yeah, we're feeling pretty good about things. So, yeah, that sounds like a good place to be. Uh, and as you said, sort of, uh, an interesting moment for the, cycling industry broadly speaking for sure so glad to hear that you're feeling like you're on pretty solid footing there but i guess sort of more broadly it'd be interesting to have you sort of zoom out and just talk about not so much the state of abby as a business but just kind of how you what you make and how you view your place in the world of bike tool companies because obviously there are many and uh What's Abby's niche and role there? We definitely kind of sit at the top um, of the market when it comes to especially bike tools. Um, you know, when we started uh, 11 years ago, it was um, kind of just, I have been a lifelong tradesperson um, and enjoy using nice tools. And so when it was like, hey, let's make some tools, it was like, well, I want to make things that that I want to use. Um, and, and the bar was really low unfortunately so it was kind of easy to just kind of walk to the top of of the butte and just like stick our flag in the uh in the top of it and you know and since then people have kind of come along and tried to up their game a little bit and um i think that we're you know people that have adopted or stepped up to our quality level of tooling um usually pretty pretty stoked on it we see a, a lot of um loyal customer base a lot of returning customers um you know every time we we bring new stuff out so um yeah which is great because our stuff if i tell the guys at the shop i'm like if we're doing our job well we don't get to sell anybody more than one of something um so that's kind of a you know thing that's it's nice to have that uh, returning customer base that keeps coming back to us for new stuff so because the bike industry certainly is not shy about coming out with things that need new tools. Yeah, we'll get to that last part <laughs> in a little bit here. But yeah, I think that's a, a good answer. And I've got a handful of your tools myself, not as many as I might like, perhaps, but um, a few and have certainly been quite impressed with them. So but let's loop back and talk about just the story of the origins of Abby, because from what I know of it, it's a pretty good one. And uh, why don't you circle back to 11 years ago and take it from the beginning? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a business that started on accident, quite literally. Um, 
I had uh, had lost a job during the the recession, uh, 2008, and so and, and wound up being self employed, uh, doing a lot of uh, freelance event and race support. Um, met some some pretty good friends along the way. One of them was Jeff Crombie. Um, in my former life, I uh, was a welder. Still still do all the production welding at, at Abby's. Kind of the last task that I hang on to. Um, which is kind of cool. It's still something that I really enjoy and love doing. Um, but, uh, yeah, had welded airplane parts for a while. Uh, Jeff Crombie used to be an airframe and power plant mechanic for, um, big, I can't remember the type, but, uh, yeah, big military style helicopters, um, that had been repurposed in their civilian life. And so Jeff and I hit off on this like kind of aircraft, uh, niche and, in camaraderie, I guess, and, and its pitfalls and, and whatnot. And um, fast forward a couple of years, he wanted a lockering tool that he could check the, the cassette lockerings um, at the end of every race day um, because he'd seen like two of them rattle loose ever, uh, which is probably on par with the number that I've seen. But Jeff, like kind of being that, you know, rotor wing guy was like, man, if if anything comes loose, it's unacceptable. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, and so he just wanted to check them every day, but then screwing out the quick release of a road wheel at the time wasn't really an option. So he, he called me up and, uh, he's like, Hey, do you, do you have a Shimano, uh, quick release skewer and a lockering tool in your garage? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, does your, does your skewer not fit inside the the tool? And I was like, yeah, He's like, drill a hole in that, weld, weld a handle to it, uh, and send it to, uh, to Calgary. Let me know what I owe you for it. And so I did that. And then before he even got it, I ordered like another 20 or so lockering tools from somebody else and did the same thing to them and was like, huh, this is a pretty good idea. Um, and then, you know, Jeff's version showed up. He was stoked on it. Um, Actually, when he immigrated to uh, from Canada to England, um, he actually purged a bunch of stuff and sent me back the very first one that that I made for him. So it's kind of cool that that thing's kind of still within the Abbey uh, scope. But um, yeah, so was uh, working at a um, kind of a random wintertime job when when racing wasn't going on, doing uh, fabrication stuff that was next to a um, CNC Swiss. Uh, machine specialty shop and so i just kind of walked in there and was like hey can you guys uh make these ends specifically for us um and they're like yeah you know and it's just kind of this like weird business where they don't they don't really service the local community um they're not that kind of shop like they're doing uh production stuff they build push rods for like almost every nascar team at this point is kind of their their specialty um, so it's kind of random for them to like have some guy walk in to, you know, just cold call them basically like looking for a vendor. And, um, and so, yeah, we worked with them to do the first batch, um, and went through, that was in, those were finished in like June of what would it be? 2010 at this point or no. Um, yeah, 11 years ago. Um, whatever that math works out 2012. Yeah. Finished those in June, uh, July of, of that year, uh, Cascade cycling class was kind of our longstanding professional road race in town. Um, and I went through the pit at the criterium, 
that was part of that race. And I, I literally sold one to every single mechanic that had money in their pocket. Um, and it was like, huh, maybe we're on to something. So like the last two or three tools from that first batch went out to a couple of journalists, um, Nick Legan, who was with Velo News at the time, and Zach Overholt from Bike Rumor. Um, is kind of this half-cocked press launch thing. Like I've, I'd never participated in anything like that. And I just got a hold of some emails, uh, said, hey, you know, we've got this new tool. Like I'm just a mechanic. They build these things in my garage. Like want to share them with the world. Um, and the the pull quotes for those articles were like overwhelming. I think Nick's was something like it's an heirloom quality tool, um, which was super flattering because Nick at the time was like my favorite tech journalist. Um, it was somebody that had kind of this background and race pedigree um, working at the world tour level. Um, and now he's a, a brand manager at Shimano, I believe. Um, but yeah, so, so to see somebody like that uh, say those kinds of things about our tools was pretty, uh, pretty flattering. And then we started getting the emails of people that were like interested in buying these things. I don't even think we had like an e-com site set up. Like that's how half baked this whole thing was. And, and people were like, well, what else do you make? Like, well, hell, I don't know. Uh, what do you, what do you want us to make? Like, apparently we couldn't make tool, a tool. We had to make tools, um, which now makes a lot of sense. So uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's kind of that old shark tank question. It's like, do you have a product or do you have a business? Um, we definitely very much at the, at the beginning had a product. Um, but then it started steamrolling from there and we kept asking people, well, what do you want us to make? What do you, what do you see a need for? And so, um, kind of would ask around the, the paddock at, at bike races that I was still working in, in those days and, would you know the the number one thing was definitely people wanted a hanger tool um they wanted something that was super accurate that was compact um and so we did that tool and it was like man this is so far above and beyond where the rest of the the market was um at that time and even to this day i mean one of the other magazines actually did a a hanger tool shootout i think just last year and we you know kind of waltzed into that at, on on top um which i don't think was a huge surprise to anybody that has a hag um but it was definitely kind of that reaffirmation that you're you're stoked to to find out so um but yeah and then it just kind of steamrolled from there i mean the first batch of hags were still built um in our garage and it wasn't until maybe about a year later, we finally moved out of the garage into our first industrial space and started, you know, getting a few manual machines and, and doing some stuff on our own that wasn't just like welding and part finishing and things like that. So, um, you know, props to my wife for putting up, listening to the tumbler run on the other side of the wall from the kitchen while we're cooking dinner, just finishing parts for way too long. So, but yeah, uh, and then it just, yeah, kept, kept snowballing, uh, from there and, and, you know, new, new products would come out that would need new tools. Um, sometimes the brands come to us with those requests. Um, SRAM's done that several times with it, whether it be SRAM specifically or one of their entities like RockShock. Um, we did a whole launch with, um, or whole range of products for them to service when I think it was reverbs and, and suspension forks, um, but yeah, and you know, we've had a couple of bike brands come to us with collab stuff and and uh so yeah, at this point it's kind of fun to just kind of get those um 
votes of confidence that, you know, from, from other brands in the industry that respect what we're doing, that are, you know, willing to share um, blueprints, drawings, whatever it is that we need to, to actually go design tools that are, that fit as well as we want them to. Um, which is sometimes, most of the time people are pretty good about that stuff. Sometimes we get the brick wall um, where they're like, nope, you don't need that. You can reverse engineer it just like everybody else. Um, and it's at this point, we know who those people are. We kind of ask kind of ingest and, and know that we're going to get a nope, not happening. So a lot in there that I want to touch on a little more, but to start it off. So in those early garage shop days, you were ch- contracting out the machining work to local shops and then doing the finishing in the, in the garage. And that was kind yep. of, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, from there, once you got that first more proper shop space of your own and started buying some, some more machines, where along that timeline did it really start to feel like this was turning into a real business as opposed to a thing where you were making one product and kind of just doing it as a little side gig. And how did that trajectory of building it into something bigger go? Yeah, I'd say that by the time that we moved out of the garage, that was kind of that that mind shift had had happened of like, oh, this is going from kind of the side hustle, if you will, to an actual business. Like there's a need for um, higher quality tooling in the bike industry. One of the things that we've kind of said over the years is that, um, you know, from about the late 90s, early 2000s uh, to present, like everybody in the bike industry, their quality and their of their parts, whether it's a drivetrain supplier or a um, frame manufacturer, suspension components, like all of that stuff went up at a pretty good rate and the tools to support it, like were just even keel, right? They just, um, they would do new things to support new technology, but they weren't like, they weren't improving at the same rate that the rest of the industry was. And so um, that's kind of why it was, relatively easy for us to come out with something that was, you know, um, that much better. Yeah. Having worked in shops as a mechanic for quite a while, um, kind of mostly before you were on the scene for the most part, it's yeah. a past life quite some time ago. Um, I, and then from there having gone off to become a mechanical engineer for a good while and then <laughs> somehow wound up doing this. Um, so, it's kind of like an interesting um, combination of like all of the different things that I've done over my life of like just being a bike guy, being a shop mechanic for a long time, and then, you know, engineer with an appreciation for well-built, well-machined things. And um, so just kind of cool to kind of hear how you got there. And when you started all this off, Obviously, you mentioned before that you'd been working as a welder and tradesperson in various ways uh, prior to Abby. How much experience did you have in tool design kind of stuff specifically? Because like there's sort of this class of um, kind of like old school tool and die guys from that are sort of a little bit of a dying breed at this point. But did you have any of that kind of background or was it mostly as a welder or what were you bringing experience wise to those early days? Yeah, it was just kind of, um, industrial fabrication and welding. Right. So it was everything from like, um, heat exchangers for power plants, everything from like old school, um, 
coal stuff to modern um, nuclear plants that were grassroots construction projects in other countries. Um, you know, so it was kind of cool to actually start off there um, and then kind of bookended that with uh, aircraft stuff that was all certified. So most of the the tool making stuff that that I'd done in the past was all like just um, production tooling, right? It was like a little jig, a little fixture um, for this and that. It wasn't so much like making hand tools like we do now. And um, that's kind of the, my favorite thing about well, what it is that we do. It's like we we make tools. Um, we so we kind of are tool makers, but we're not definitely not that traditional tool and die guy that you you mentioned, which is. Um, for people that don't know, that's kind of the people that make um, molds and uh, machinery and stuff to make literally everything um, that we contact in everyday life. Like it is the one industry that is kind of the foundation of society. Um, you know, we're only as good as the tools that we have to to live uh, live life with. And so whether it's it's the computers that we're talking on physically or whether it's the apps and the software that allow us to have these virtual meetings, like those things are all tools. And um, as much as my eyes tend to glaze over when glaze over when we're talking about the tech industry, like they definitely have have pushed life forward uh, in, in many ways, usually for the better, sometimes not. Um, but yeah, we're, we're um, didn't come to it with a ton of um kind of truly applicable experience um, other than just I was our customer. Um, I knew how to connect the dots. I knew enough CAD uh, to convey with the shops what it is that we wanted. Um, we definitely have had doing business with other contractors or vendors where they've kind of, you know, nudged us along to to kind of grow up a little bit and like, do things like formal purchase orders and things that are kind of commonplace with, with a lot of businesses. But when you're doing this stuff out of your garage, sometimes it's like, eh, like, no, I, here's a, here's an email. I need 200 of these. And so then you kind of touched on building out the Abbey lineup sort of ad hoc, just as you had ideas and requests for this, that, or the other. So is that kind of still how things get added or what's the change in that been like as the company's grown and matured and you've got obviously a much wider lineup of tools at this point though you're not making everything that one would need to work on a bike so how do you think about which kinds of tools you can sort of make an abby version of and decide where you can have an impact and what makes sense to make yeah, it definitely kind of ebbs and flows. There's um, that time of like listening to your customer base and what do they want in a tool. Um, sometimes it's a like I touched on earlier, the manufacturer um, brand collab where where somebody comes to us and says, "Hey, we really want um, want a tool to fit this this need or this purpose." Um, this our saw guide is a great example of that. That you know, Allied, the carbon composite company based out of um, Northwest Arkansas was like, Hey, we're going to stick some cables through the steer tube. And uh, we know people aren't going to be super stoked on having to work on this. So can you make us a saw guide that makes this less of a struggle? Um, and that was one where it's like, we, we, a saw guide was on our radar for quite a while. 
and but it was we kind of like we're struggling to find some key feature that really would differentiate it um and so when they came to us and like hey here's this need that we have it was like bingo that's that's the thing let's go forward with it um sometimes it's a really calculated thing where um we get data or feedback from our wholesale partners that hey we sell a lot of units in this category and you guys don't really have anything to play there um you, you guys want to do a whatever um like a price point pedal wrench or a, a multi-tool or something that like joe bike rider can uh can justify buying um so yeah sometimes they're a little bit more in that vein um sometimes they're manufacturer collabs sometimes they're things that that come to us from our ambassador program um, which those guys are still out in the fields, you know, every day working on bikes. And, and we kind of built that program around their different disciplines. Um, you know, and so, uh, John Hall, our world cup downhill guy is going to come across very different product than, um, you know, Alan Williams, who's, uh, working world cup cross country stuff. And then we've got a couple of bike shop owners in there that, that see the gamut. Um, you know, one of them's a fitting specialist and, uh, does a lot of wind tunnel um, based bike fits for uh, time trial athletes or, or multi-sport athletes. So um, yeah, it just kind of comes from where those people, um, where their experiences take them. And, um, and the one thing that they all have in common is that they, they tend to just not sit still and take something for what it's worth. They're like, was there a better way to do this? Or like, this seems kind of clunky. Can, can Jason come up with a better solution for it? So. Yeah. And I guess sort of along those same lines, are there any noteworthy stories that you can tell about some idea that you had for something that you really wanted to be able to make and it just didn't work or couldn't get it to come together somehow? I don't think we've had a product that we've just kind of outright given up on. Um, we've had some that have taken way longer than we thought they would. Um you know, we've been about six years ago, we started working on a touring stand um, and that lasted for about six months. And then it started, uh, we got super busy with um, with a project and then we moved uh, our, our shop and then it just sat there for four or five years and collected dust. And so uh, then about a year ago, we picked it up right now. It's in testing. We'll probably launch that later this year, but that's one that's kind of like stings a little bit when some of our friends give us, give us flack about it. And they're like, when are you going to finish the trig stand? And it's like, uh, it's like, I know where it's at. Uh, it's covered in like coolant and dust. Um, <laughs> it needs a pressure washer at this point, but um yeah, so a few things like that that take way longer. Uh, we've actually got another tool that we're going to drop at Sea Otter here in a couple of weeks. Um, that's another one that that took way longer than we wanted to, and and some of that was uh, IP protection related, um, kind of going through the process to file patents on that one. Um, so yeah, I should be not always the smoothest road to get there, but uh, we usually get them along the finish line. Sometimes they, the market viability of them isn't great. Um, you know, it's like as the, as the process goes along to solve the problems to manufacturing, it's like, there's another $5 at retail. There's another $10 at retail. Um, our pedal wrenches are that way. They're pretty unique. Uh, they're super handy for people, but you know, who, how many people are like, 
a hundred dollar plus pedal wrench is, is kind of a tall order. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. So, you know, it's like pedal wrenches are a really common tool for, um, anybody that owns a bike to have. And, you know, I'm sure that if we could half the price of that thing, we could quadruple this, the sales volume of it. But it's like, is that something that is going to be unique is going to be worthy of, of our brand and our effort. Um, and yeah, at this point we've decided no. Fair enough. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but be interested to hear you talk a bit about what it's like kind of being in your position of having this sort of existing lineup of tools to do a bunch of different stuff. And as you noted, just having the bike industry be so good at thinking up new tool interfaces to do the same thing that they have been doing for quite some time and kind of having to just keep up with the ever changing set of standards for let's just say bottom bracket tools, for example. Yeah. Uh, bottom brackets are a great example of that. Um, you know, the, the chaos that happens there. Cause there are, I mean, it's the same, it's been the same part since the, what I think the, um, trying to remember the XTR group was like maybe 960 uh was early 2000s uh was the first outboard bearing bottom bracket i believe and um you know and so and that's so from that point forward how many different um bottom bracket tool fitments did we did we come across and then you throw press fit in there which i think Cannondale launched at about the same time as that Shimano's uh XTR group came out um but yeah, it, so just the proliferation of those things. And I think a lot of it comes from just um, people not talking to their peers, whether it's out of fear or um, like, oh, well, we'll just do something. And then like, yeah, we'll we'll have a, a tool for it. Um, you know, in that specific kind of chain of events, there really needed to be like three. So that original um, XTR fitment, uh, we call that tool the BB common because it is so common at, at one point there was like this perfect, uh, point in time when everybody did an outboard bearing bottom bracket setup and everybody used the same tool. And it was like, you know, bike industry, pat yourself on the back. Like we did this one, right. Um, and then I, I believe it was zip with the Vuma quad crank came along with a 30 millimeter spindle in a 68 millimeter, uh, BSA threaded shell. And so that one, just the geometry of the, the BB common tool would not support, um, the, uh, uh, the BS or what we now call BSA 12, uh, internally. Um, but yeah, that 30 mil spindle, basically the BB common would have landed that tool spline lines up like kind of in the middle of the bearing. So you can't really do, um, a whole lot with that. The other thing that really complicates bottom bracket tools in general is, is it's a, probably the tightest, most expensive amount of real estate on a bike design wise. And so you want the frame as wide as possible. You want the bearings narrow, you want the Q factor narrow, and then you start worrying about chain line and suspension linkage stuff. If we're talking off-road um, or even tire clearance for, you know, modern gravel bikes. And so it gets pretty difficult in there in a hurry. Um, and then the last one that needed to exist was uh, what Enduro bearings came out with, which they call torque tight. Uh, and that originally came out for the, um, the press fit, uh, thread together cups. So if you had a PF 30 frame and you wanted to thread a, a, 
thread a bottom bracket into itself in a press fit frame uh, to maybe eliminate creaking from somebody that didn't build their bike correctly. Um, you know, those were a pretty solid solution. Everything else, which is still, I think, eight other tools from us, um, was unnecessary. Uh, so uh, part of me wishes that we could just sell three different tools and say, hey, this is what it is. Um, for whatever reason, it didn't work out like that. Um, sometimes we've been fortunate enough to to have those conversations with brands um, where it's like, hey, here's the here's the tool that that we think is the most applicable for, you know, at this point in time going forward. And usually it's that torque type one where it's like this is big enough to do a T47. It's big enough to do the the thread together systems uh, that a few different companies do. But it's not. And then you can do it for like the the 30 mil spindle and the threaded shell. Um, even though it's a little bigger than it needs to be, it's still it's not grossly different. Um, and in theory, you could build it with uh, the BB common for the 24 uh, millimeter spindles. So, um, yeah, sometimes they're receptive to those. Other times we've we've had manufacturers that um, like, nope, we're going to do this. And this is the way that that uh, that we want to do it. And it's like you just kind of put your head in your hand and you're like, this is ridiculous. Um, your customers are going to mock you for this, but whatever. They're, um, and then we do a tool for that too, because it's just one more thing for us to sell. <laughs> and I guess apart from streamlining a lot of that kind of stuff and not requiring that a shop owner have 18 different bottom bracket tools, what kind of stuff do you think that the bike industry could really be doing to make the jobs and lives of either pro mechanics or just the average home consumer mechanic easier. Yeah. I think, you know, a big portion of that stuff is the, uh, the customer service side of things and just walking somebody through getting the right tool for their parts. Um, and, and it can be kind of difficult. I think I'm maybe one of a handful of people in the industry globally that, that keeps all that stuff straight because it is such a big, part of our business. I would imagine that there's somebody at park tool that, that has that on lock as well. And maybe the third person is at Unior. but apart from that, you, you don't really see like, you know, people from SRAM or Shimano or Campaniola, like they know what their bottom brackets need to a T. Um, and, and they might know which brands model numbers, uh, from a, an independent tool manufacturer, uh, service those things, but, but they probably don't know what their peers do. So, um, that would be a big part is just commonality. Um, you know, Chris King did for a couple of years, um, an industry summit at their facility in Portland, um, that we sat in on one year and it was pretty much about like, Hey, what can we come together and talk about these things to make everybody's life easier? I think things like that would be great to see return kind of in a post pandemic, uh, space. Um, you know, looking at the the Eagle transmission that dropped last week, a big chunk of that was setup, uh, ease of setup and serviceability from that. You know, I think that that's a huge uh, step forward. Um, it doesn't come without some trade-offs, right? It's kind of frame specific, which, you know, I mean, I was involved in racing long enough and, and saw all that um chase for speed and performance. I'm still a, an avid F1 fan and for all of the technical reasons of that. Um, 
even though the racing has been kind of boring lately. Um, but, uh, you know, so I appreciate and understand the, the need sometimes to break down those standards and, and things for, in the sake of progress. Um, so, you know, moving forward, does transmission become a big stumbling block? Um, I think it's, it really kind of depends on what, uh, what Shimano does with that and how they react, uh, which I think a lot of people that's on their mind, um, they could kind of step in line and, and have some commonality there for the best interest of, of everybody or could not. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, YouTube's a great resource for people looking to tinker. Um, pretty much learned to run a CNC machine off of YouTube and the help of a couple of friends. So um, I think there is, there could be a lot of secondary, like second rate information out there. Um, so the key seems to be finding out who to trust, but on the flip side, like once you hone in on those people, there's a lot of great info out there. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the drivetrain stuff, especially. And um, you know, Shimano's, got a patent floating around for a direct mount derailleur as well will it be compatible with the same frames who knows we're gonna yeah it could be a few years until we know at the pace that those things sometimes uh move so that's kind of what i suspect but we'll see and like you said i think i've been spending some time with this ram transmission and i do really kind of think that the installation and setup stuff with it is in many ways kind of the most interesting and significant part of what they've streamlined with it. And uh, I guess I have some questions as to like how truly valuable and important that is for the average consumer versus being neat and nice, but not necessarily a like dramatic change to the whole experience of ownership, but uh, it's slick. They've worked it out really well. So um hats off to people who figure that stuff out because it does genuinely work extremely well, especially just the ease and straightforwardness of setup aspect of it. So that's cool. Yeah. I, th I think that that stuff really, I don't know. It, it's hard to, to, to take a step back as somebody that's worked in the industry as long as you and I have. And, um, but like if somebody buys those super, you know, those high end parts and then they don't set them up correctly and they don't work well, then it's like, is that a reflection on the owner, uh, the rider, or is it a reflection on whoever made the parts? Um, and so I feel that like the more streamlined that stuff can be, the end consumer uh, benefits from that um, in some way. Maybe it's just a, an ease of maintenance that they're having to pay less money for somebody else to maintain their stuff or to assemble their stuff at a factory um, or at their local shop or, you know, whether they're actually doing it on their own and they're like, Oh, I just replaced my drivetrain in 15 minutes. Like this is fantastic. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, uh, it's, it's easy for me to kind of forget that, you know, having worked in a shop for so long and adjusted however many million derailers in my lifetime that not everyone has done it to the point where it's, you know, automatic and, uh, there's something to be said for that, for sure. How about the name Abby? Where'd that come from and how'd you wind up there? Yeah, I think that that comes up in almost every interview that I do. Um, we should probably put it on our website. Uh, I was a home brewer for a long time. Um, just a hobby that I enjoyed doing, uh, making beer on the back deck of the house. Um, 
And I kind of wanted to turn the tables on the craft beer industry in the U.S. borrowing things from cycling. Um, so New Belgium's Fat Tire Ale was kind of a hallmark example. Um, and I think in any kind of bike-minded town, um, if you have at least one craft brewery, you have they have at least one beer in their catalog that uh, that has a, a cycling-themed name. Um, the challenge with that was is that we everything in the brewing world was, was usually named after something else or was super random and weird and was just going to be like a tough sell to like build a brand around or, um, I mean, websites were really easy to get for, uh, like weird things like yeast strains and, uh, whatnot. But, um, yeah, so originally we started the name, um, a former coworker of mine and I wanted to build some bike frames, um, and so we, we wanted a name for the down tube and he loved all things Belgium, uh, the crappy weather, the French fries, um, you know, the bike racing and the beer. And so we kind of honed in on some of those things and, and we, we'd find something that we would sit on for a couple of days. Um, like, Oh, do we like this? And it would kind of weather and like, no. And then he spit out Abby. Um, and it was, it was just like, that's it. And then, um, I think Abby wasn't available as a website because uh, Santander owns them, like the massive uh, bank and are they Scottish or, um, but yeah, huge international corporate entity. Um, but yeah, Abby, uh, Abby bike works was, which we put on, on tools for about the first year and a half. And then when we made that, that switch to being tool specific and switched to Abby bike tools, but uh, yeah, it's Abby with an E. Uh, it's meant to to reflect kind of named after the beer brewing monks um, from the monasteries. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that early project making frames. What were you trying to do then and why'd that fizzle out? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was more just something to do is fun. Um, it, it kind of I think there's a lot of people that got in, especially during that era. Right. Um, that was kind of mid mid to late two thousands. Um, there was like this romance about frame building. Um, we had all of the equipment to like, I had a jig, he had a welder. Um, you know, so we, we had all this, there were very few obstacles, uh, standing in our way. And so it's like, let's do this. Um, and yeah, it was really just things that, that we wanted to ride our own bikes. Um, I don't, we kind of had maybe a, a bit of a pipe dream about like, Oh, we could make a go at this. And, um, but that didn't last very long. So, um, yeah, when the shop that we worked for went out of business that, that into, uh, rather swiftly. Um, but yeah, part of it was just that all the frame builders that I looked up to or that I appreciated their work were just doing like really simple, um, utilitarian bikes that, you know, were just really well made, um, people like Mike DeSalvo down in Southern Oregon and, um, uh, gosh, and now I'm blanking on all the other people. Um, you know, always loved tie bikes. Moots was kind of a first love of mine, uh, working in the, in the shops in the early days. Um, and in the Midwest where I grew up, they were super rare. Um, not definitely the the big bike culture, uh, that we have in Oregon, but, um, you know, rock lobster, uh, guys like that, that just, Hey, these things are tools. They're, they're very utilitarian. Uh, they're well-built and they're custom, but they're not, we're not putting thousand fifteen hundred dollar paint jobs on them, 
you know? So, and I was like, those guys do a really good job of that. And they've made their name at it for a long time. Like, are we really going to be able to crack, crack into this with something that's like normal? Um, that's not super fancy and flashy and has all this color match stuff, which those bikes look awesome. I don't want to knock anybody that does that, but it definitely wasn't going to be our skill set. So. Yeah. Okay. And well, it seems like you've kind of managed to find your way with it and have a pretty good thing going here. So, um, been cool getting the rundown on how you got to where you're at and, uh, Thanks for the time to chat. Been fun and looking forward to seeing what you're cooking up at Sea Otter there. So I guess I'll see you in a few weeks probably and get some more info on the new stuff. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, warm and sunny down in Monterey. Not too warm. Last year was way too hot, at least the first couple days. So we'll hope for the right balance. But uh, yeah, we drove home in a snowstorm. I remember that much. (laughs) Really? I. How did I miss out on it? Huh. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, Fingers crossed for good weather. And uh, thanks again for the chat. And see you soon, I suppose. Yeah. Thanks. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I'd also like to say thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister... Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back with you again next week. Bye, everybody.